Welcome to the NACE Journal Club, where each issue we will go over some of the most important articles for primary care to have come out of the medical literature. And we have a great set of articles to discuss this month, starting with an article from the New England Journal on a new medicine for obesity that is in the pipeline, a triple hormone receptor agonist, ritatrutide. And this is a phase two trial. Then we're going to discuss another emerging area of therapy, lipoprotein A, and an article in JAMA on an oral small molecule inhibitor of lipoprotein A formation. You might ask, why do we care? We'll get to that. And then we're going to discuss an article that came out in JAMA about the way sedentary behavior influences the development of dementia among older adults. And I think there we already know why we care. For our first article this month, we're going to discuss an article from the New England Journal on a new class of obesity medicine that's in the pipeline, triple hormone receptor agonist ritatrutide for obesity, a phase two trial is the title of the article. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Marissa Norden. Dr. Norden is a third-year resident in the Family Medicine Residency at Jefferson Health Abington. Welcome, Marissa. Good evening, Dr. Skolnick. It's great to be here discussing this exciting article with you. Great. And, and let's start off with the question that I think most of our listeners are wondering, which is, what is ritatrutide? That is a great question, something I hadn't heard of before we discussed it and I read this article. So this study looked at ritatrutide for treatment for obesity. And as we know, there are a lot of new treatments that we're using in the primary care setting for obesity. Ritatrutide is a once-weekly injectable medication, and it's a triple hormone receptor agonist. It targets the GLP-1, GIP, and GCC receptors. It's once-weekly, given similar to our other medications. This medication originally was studied for patients with diabetes, and they found that these patients tended to have weight loss. They found about 10% weight loss over 12 weeks. That led to bringing some clinical trials, as discussed in this article, for patients for the treatment of obesity. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, we're familiar with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, the dual agonist, GLP-1, GIP agonist, but you said GCC and the triple agonist. And, th and that last part is glucagon, which is surprising for a lot of people, but in the right titrated amount, which as we'll see, this molecule is, uh, the addition of a glucagon agonist actually helps with weight loss. And one of the theories about how it might help is it might slow the uh, offset, the metabolic adaptation that occurs over time with weight loss. But let's jump into this trial. Uh, Marissa, can you tell us about methodology? So it was a randomized, double-blinded trial. It was a phase two clinical trial, and it lasted over about 48 weeks. They got 338 participants. They ranged in age from 18 to 75, so it did exclude our pediatric population. Patients did have to have a BMI of 30 to 50 or over 27 with an obesity-related comorbidity, pretty similar to how we start our current medications. They did also exclude patients with diabetes, patients that were having weight loss surgery or had that already, 
or patients that were on a lot of other medications that greatly impacted their weight. And that was just for this study. Some patients got a placebo, and then some patients got different ranges of medication, ranging from one milligram each week all the way up to 12 milligrams each week. If they started above four milligrams, or if they were getting a dose above four milligrams, they increased it very slowly over the first 12 weeks to try and limit side effects. At the the end of the study, what they looked at was change in weight at 24 weeks. That was their primary endpoint. They also looked at change in weight at 48 weeks. They looked at waist circumference. They looked at people's hemoglobin A1C, their blood pressure, and their uh, waist circumference and lipids. Fantastic. And now we're all wondering, what were the results? The results were really exciting. They found that patients that were on the highest dose of Ritutride lost about 17% body weight at 24 weeks and up to 24% of their body weight at 48 weeks. Now, this was an average. Some people that started with BMIs over 35 actually lost more than that. They also found really significant decreases to waist circumference. They found that weight loss was going to perhaps continue even after the study ended. When we looked at the graphs, it looked like patients may not have reached their plateau. They found that about 72% of people with prediabetes had a normal hemoglobin A1C at the end of the study if they were on one of the higher doses of medication. They also found that participants on the higher doses of medication were able to come off of blood pressure medication, about 30 to 40% of those participants. They also found that about 20% of participants on, on the higher doses of treatment had lowered LDL. They did look at side effects, and of course, there were some similar to the medications we have now. Most of these were at the higher doses of medication and included nausea and vomiting. Some participants even needed to have their dose decreased because their BMIs were getting too low. They were getting below 22, so they scaled back. No one had to have their medication stopped because of um, having too much weight loss. There were some rare side effects, including pancreatitis, skin sensitivity, and elevated liver function, among a couple other things that they did look at. What a great overview. And Marissa, what do you see as the clinical implications of this trial? I think it's very exciting that we might be able to potentially offer patients a medication that will lead to such incredible weight loss. As you pointed out, that's comparable to bariatric surgery. I think we're going to have to see some more studies to look at the safety, as I think that will be a concern that our patients will have, as well as to see if it's going to be effective in patients with diabetes. But I am excited to hopefully be able to use this medication in the future. Yeah, it really is exciting. It's now entered phase three trials, which, as people know, is that phase trial that is then uh, readying if the results are as they are hoped to be for uh, FDA submission at some point after completion of the phase three trials. And it's really pretty amazing if we think about, say, compared to semaglutide and terzepatide, there are the average weight loss at 72 weeks of the completion of the phase three trials were 15% and 22% respectively. Here at the end of 48 weeks, shorter, it was 24% with pretty amazing metabolic effects, as you said, Marissa, improvement in blood pressure, lipids, et cetera. So we really have entered a new age and will continue to be entering a new age with regard to our ability to help patients with obesity. Dr. Marissa Norton, thank you so much. Thank you. For our next article, we're going to discuss an article from JAMA titled, 
muvaliplin, an oral small molecule inhibitor of lipoprotein A formation. You might ask, why do we care about this? And we're going to talk to you about that in just a moment. And joining us to talk about that and the article is Dr. Richard Potter. Dr. Potter is a resident in the Family Medicine Residency at Jefferson Health Abington. Welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Skolnick. Richard, I raised the question a couple of minutes ago. Why should we care about lipoprotein A? Can you fill us in a little bit? Absolutely. So this article and similar others have been coming out as LPA has been found to be both independently linked to ASCVD and aortic stenosis. There is a recent consensus statement by the European Atherosclerosis Society describing a lot of the studies that have both genetic implications from LPA and a lot of things related to ASCVD. So now new potential therapies have coming out from injectable therapies. And now we have mevaliplin being developed as the first oral therapeutic in this phase one clinical trial. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's one of those areas that we're going to start hearing a lot more about, and we're going to have to understand that concept of residual risk for our listeners, right? We decrease cardiac risk a great deal when we treat with statins, but then there's still risk that is left. People who are treated still, many of them do get a heart attack or a stroke. That risk that is left is called residual risk. We address it in many ways, smoking cessation, good blood sugar control, good control of hypertension, uh, good control of triglycerides. We saw that in the Reduce-It study with ethyl. So there's all this residual risk, which is actually greater in aggregate than the risk we know how to get to. And it turns out that an important portion of that is driven by LP little a. Can you tell us about this molecule and then about the methodology that was used here? Absolutely. So mevaliplin, what's interesting about it is that it's a small molecule inhibitor between interaction of ApoA and ApoB. So therapies so far have been uh, RNA silencing therapies that have been injectable. So this is something that's new coming out with uh, with respect to that. Fantastic. So how did they look at this? Uh, fill us in on how the study was done, but only briefly on methodology, because I think we always get tired when we hear too much methodology. Of course. Like I had mentioned, it's phase one clinical trial. They had been looking at a small population of healthy adults, so BMI 30 and under, and there were two arms in the study intervention. They looked at assessing response to one dose of mevaliplin in ascending increments, and then secondly, to assess the effect of mevaliplin as a single daily dose over 14 days in ascending increments. So with the phase one trial, they're measuring safety and tolerability. They were also looking at some preliminary studies on pharmacokinetics and effects on biomarkers LP little a, and plasminogen levels as well. Great. And what were the results? Yeah. So among the 114 participants that were randomized to the two interventions, 105 completed the trial. In terms of safety and tolerability, 
was not found to have any specific clinically significant adverse effects or tolerability concerns. And in terms of effects on biomarkers, what they found was that within 24 hours after the first dose, and this became better with repeated dosing, you had a max of around 60 to 65% reduction of LP little a to around under 55 milligrams per deciliter in the study participants on average. And this started to level off at a daily dose of 100 milligrams or more, and then leveling off over time around day seven rate of administration. Great. So this is really promising early data. Now it is early data. This is a phase one trial. What do you see as the clinical implications of this? Yeah. So given the thinking and thoughts around LP, little a being an independent risk factor for ASCVD and being minimally affected by most current medications and lifestyle changes, I think we'll begin to see a, a lot more developments and treatments and this study specifically, I think, opens the possibility of new oral agents, which tend to be more accessible and I think will be very important coming up in the future. And going back to that European Heart Journal study was that in patients with elevated levels of LP little a at a certain, in a certain range, they found that was associated with almost a similar risk to someone with familial hypercholesterolemia. And so I think that itself is important to think about in terms of, you know, should we begin measuring this? Should we begin thinking about kind of long-term treatment options? Yeah. You know, it, it's a new area for most of us. The European guidelines suggest that testing once over the course of a lifetime, because unlike, uh, say, triglycerides or LDL cholesterol, it tends not to change a lot over time. It's And it's not a Affected. You can't affect it by lifestyle and statins do not help to decrease LP little a. So it's an area where there really is a, a need for new therapies. Dr. Richard Potter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Skolnick. Our next article is a fascinating one, and it was published in JAMA titled and get ready for this in case you're not on the elliptical right now or riding your bicycle while we're listening you may be on your bike or running for the next episode of this podcast because the title here is sedentary behavior and the development of dementia among older adults this is an article that has important implications joining us to discuss this is dr mike devano who is a resident in the Family Medicine Residency Program at Jefferson Health Abington. Mike, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Neil. So let, let's just start with a little bit of background. Why did the authors look into this topic? Yeah, so sedentary behavior had been associated, as we all know, with cardiometabolic and cognitive disease and mortality. So they really wanted to look at what effect or what relationship does sedentary behavior have specifically with dementia. A little background from the study was that uh, they cited a few of the studies that showed a, a increased sedentary time had a dose-dependent relationship with cardiovascular disease in older women, increased levels of physical activity at any uh, uh, intensity was associated with um, substantially reduced risk of premature mortality, 
And they even cited some studies that showed television time and driving time actually had been associated Mm. with cognitive decline. So they really wanted to study how does sedentary behavior associate itself with the risk of all-cause dementia. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this association between sedentary behavior and cardiovascular outcomes is strong enough that it led the World Health Organization to include in the title of its recent physical activity guidelines. It's no longer called the physical activity guidelines. It's called guidelines on physical activity and sedentary behavior because of the strength of that association, which exists even when controlled. That that person who the exercising couch potato, I think it's called, if you exercise for an hour a day, but then you're sitting the rest of the day, that sedentary uh, the impact of the sedentary behavior is still real. Uh, mm-hmm. So important area. Can you tell us a little bit about the methodology for this study? Yeah, so it, it was a retrospective study of prospectively gathered data from the UK Biobank. It was uh, The Biobank is a community dwelling, adults living specifically in England, Scotland, or Wales. They originally collected some data from an original sub-study that was conducted from 2013 to 2015. It it had originally over 100,000 patients that had agreed to wear an accelerometer 24 hours a day, seven days a week on their dominant wrist. And they had specific inclusion criteria for this study. And uh, then they collected data for about seven years for patients in England and Scotland. And then for uh, four years, they collected data for patients from Wales. They reviewed the accelerometer data And then they reviewed inpatient hospital records and death registry data to determine incidents, uh, incident all-cause dementia diagnoses. So pretty amazingly complete information. And this isn't even like some studies I've seen just ask patients what their physical activity was. This really looked at the reality of what their physical activity was. Can you now go over the results? Yeah, so with their inclusion criteria, they ended up studying uh, over 49,000 patients of the original 100,000. The mean age was 67 and 54.7% were female. Of the 49, over 49,000 patients, 414 individuals were diagnosed with incident all-cause dementia. And in the results, just to summarize, there was a significant nonlinear association between time spent and sedentary behavior and incident dementia. Uh, maybe I'll throw around some numbers. So as uh, your sedentary behavior increased, so did your hazard ratio. So starting off at 10 hours per day of sedentary behavior, the hazard ratio was 1.08. 12 hours per day of sedentary behavior, the hazard ratio is 1.63. And then at 15 hours a day of sedentary behavior, hazard ratio was uh, 3.21. It's pretty amazing. So even a small increase in sedentary behavior, and, and you, you said this when you said nonlinear, leads to a disproportionate increase in, uh, in incident dementia. And that, that's a pretty amazing increase, that hazard ratio of 3.21 for 15 hours a day versus about 10 hours a day is is a threefold increase, right? Yeah. And I, I, I'm sure you saw the data. There was a, a part there that talked about the incidence rate of dementia per 1,000 person years. Um, it also had a pretty remarkable increase at the 15 hours per day. So just to throw some numbers out there as well. So 12 hours 
per day, there was an uh, incidence rate of dementia uh, of 12. But when you increase to 15 hours per day, it doubled, uh, almost doubled to 22.74. Pretty amazing. So it might be obvious, but I'll ask it anyway. What do you see as the clinical implications of this data? I think simply put, um, move a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that they mentioned in the discussion that the mean time spent in the U.S. in 2019 was approximately 9.5 hours per day, which falls close to the kind of median of 10 hours per day in this study. So, I mean, we're, we're right there. So, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes of just not being sedentary, you know, works wonders, you know, in terms of yeah. um, to prevention. Yeah, I, I know for me in the office, the, what I think will happen is... I always talk about physical activity and the importance of exercise. I haven't talked as much with my patients about how important it is not to sit a lot. And it strikes me that it's harder to do in actuality than physical activity. We can say we exercise for 30 minutes a day and we can time that. It's harder to say I'm going to sit less, but I'm going to mention it to patients. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And then, and even what you're doing what, while you're sitting seemed to, they, the authors had pointed that out. It said there was a possible relationship with types of leisure time, sedentary behavior, like passive TV watching. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe even if you're forced to sit down or you're doing something at home, don't do passive TV watching. You know, maybe you do some games or puzzles or something that's cognitively demanding and that can, you know, that might play a role just as much as moving more. Really important information. Dr. Mike Devano, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the NACE Journal Club and join us again next month to talk about the latest in the medical literature.